0: From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Maliheira Zazan. In 2011, Professor Natasha Eskander began a multi-year project to document labor practices on Qatari construction sites and to understand what had produced them. She spent hundreds and hundreds of hours on project sites, shadowing and interviewing workers on site and at their labor camps. She also interviewed their supervisors, their employers, the architects that designed the buildings and the government officials that commissioned them. In her new book, Does Skill Make Us Human? Migrant Workers in 21st Century Qatar and Beyond, she details the working and living conditions of hundreds of thousands of migrant workers who work in the construction industry. Around 90% of Qatar's population of 2.6 million is made up of foreigners, many of them migrant workers who often work in blistering heat to finish the mega-construction projects in time for the World Cup that starts on November 21st. Natasha Eskandar is an associate professor at NYU Wagner Graduate School of Public Service whose research investigates the ways in which migrants shape the political and cultural landscape of the spaces they occupy. Here is the second part of my interview with Professor Eskandar. Earlier, we spoke about Qatar's supercharged mega-construction project. Let's talk about what happened after Qatar was awarded the World Cup in 2010. The Qatari government began channeling hundreds of billions of dollars of state revenue toward reinventing itself as a global destination for sports and culture. It commissioned the state-of-art stadiums, tourism facilities, and infrastructure for games, along with recruitment of hundreds of thousands of men, mainly from South Asia, the Middle East, and Africa, to build these structures. Can you tell us briefly how much money Qatar has spent to prepare itself for the tournament? And how did the urban planning and construction industry change in Qatar after 2010?
1: So how much Qatar spent on the World Cup depends on what you define as being part of the World Cup. It spent around four or five billion dollars on Stadia, but that was only a sliver of the construction that happened to build the infrastructure for the World Cup. Qatar probably spent close to or above $300 billion in anticipation of this game, set of games, and also to reinvent itself as a global destination for sports and culture. Much of that construction is in basic infrastructure, so massive civil engineering project to build a new metro system, but also to lay down a new planned city to the north of Doha for about half a million people, built primarily around a structure of artificial islands north of the Doha Bay. So this is Lusail and it's a planned city. You know, as with the rest of Qatari design, it is at the cutting edge. It is at the global cutting edge. And Qatar also had to build other infrastructure to support the construction and to support uh, hosting the games, uh, most notably the expansion and relocation of its airport. Qatar now has an airport that when it was first built, expanded the footprint of Doha by a third. It built a new port in part to accommodate the importation of construction materials, but also the just the everyday materials and products associated with being a global city and had to upgrade its liquefied natural gas extraction and processing facilities to be able to sell natural gas to fund these games and many other things. So Qatar has really invested in this construction push in a massive and very dramatic way.
0: You write about how they have expanded the hydrocarbon infrastructures. They have built massive pipelines for liquid natural gas transportation. They have spent about something like $50 billion, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. It's about $50
1: billion for the Barzan infrastructure for liquefied natural gas. And, you know, Qatar's star is rising with respect to liquefied natural gas, in part because some of the tensions that we are now seeing centered on Ukraine, which calls into question the North Star pipeline that runs from Russia to Europe. And that as an important player offering an alternative source of natural
0: gas. So most of the construction in Kingdom was dictated by a master plan, Qatar National Vision 2030. The strategic framework adopted in 2008 provided the framework for the country's urban development program. Let's talk about the so-called vision. Who was behind it? What would that city look like eventually? And who was supposed to live in it? Qatar
1: National Vision 2030 is similar to many national development plans that you see throughout the region, and in fact, that have shaped development policy around the world. So the articulation of a national plan is not itself a particularly remarkable uh, turn of events. I would say basically all the countries in the GCC have some version of a vision plan for 2030, 2025, and so on. This is part of a development methodology where kind of the future is laid out and built, and then people are expected to comply with that future. It's a modernist approach to development that reverses the order of thinking about development as the product of the action of the populace. Rather, modernist planning starts with the idea that you define the future and you ask the populace to comply. In the Gulf, what is slightly different about the modernist plans is that Gulf has uh, used an approach where it has laid out the vision with the understanding that it can then import the people to populate that vision. So it is in some ways planning without people, not planning despite people. This has definitely been true of Qatar. As the vision 2030 lays out Qatar, wants to view itself as a knowledge economy that is a global destination for knowledge elites, with the sports, culture, educational facilities to match. And this is the vision. The physical manifestation of that vision is not specified in the vision. The vision is a set of principles, but for sure the built environment reflects the kinds of priorities, the target population, who Qatar wants to be, the income group and occupations that it wants to welcome, and the kind of political that it has for itself. So as you look around Doha and now Lusail and other parts, you see a vision of a city that is highly planned, a city-state, really, that is highly planned that is designed for the needs of the global elite, and that wants to position itself as a knowledge center, but without the kinds of free exchange of ideas and controversies that are so much a part of the development of knowledge.
0: The construction industry in Qatar has been an international affair. In 2010, there were just over a half a million construction workers in Qatar. By 2015, there were nearly 900,000. You write in 2018, the value of major contracts awarded to international firms totaled an estimated $115 billion. And these companies came from all over the world. Greece, Malaysia, Germany, Italy, Saudi Arabia, Australia, everywhere. Can you talk about the recruitment process? How did these companies go about importing what is often called unskilled workers into the country?
1: You know, as you note, the construction industry grew very quickly. It doubled in size in terms of its workforce in five years. Uh, That's a remarkable growth especially for the fact that there's no sitting workforce in Qatar. All of these workers had to be recruited abroad and the workers cycled through. They didn't stay for extended contracts. The contract tended to be short-term, two to four years. Companies working in Qatar had to develop really sophisticated mechanisms for recruiting large numbers of workers. And you know, part of the... Um, speed and with which the construction for the COP happened meant that companies not only had to recruit large numbers of workers, but they had to recruit them very, very fast. So between the time that it took them to get permissions from the government, to connect with recruiters abroad, really by the time they finished all of these bureaucratic processes, they often had only just a couple week or a month to recruit hundreds and hundreds of workers at a time. So, you know, this is not a small achievement. What many construction companies did, and this I found really remarkable, is that they got really sophisticated about this process. And they targeted areas where they could find large numbers of workers very quickly, but workers who had a specific trait, which was that they were able to learn very fast. They also needed to recruit these workers at wages that were affordable to them, so low wages. And the best places to source these kinds of workers were in places that had sustained climate damage. The reason for that is that these were areas that were newer, right? So these were areas often where there had been investments in education and nutrition and health, where people had some assets they could mortgage to pay the costs of migration, but which had come under strain because of slow or fast climate damage. So by that, I mean things like endemic drought or tunes that didn't arrive on cycle, typhoons or uh, rains that were excessive, right? So these stressor pressures in communities and in particular created pressures requiring cash for communities to rebuild, to cope, to adapt to these repeated crises. And what recruiters in Qatar are very good at is finding recruiters who were able to uh, identify in a granular sense, which communities had suffered these particular climate stresses, in ways that produce the kinds of workers that companies in Qatar needed. Many cases, what I found was that recruiters had a more detailed and more socioeconomic understanding of the effects of climate change in particular communities than the climate science itself could provide.
0: And you give the example of what happened in Bangladesh how they recruited workers from Bangladesh. Can you talk about that example of what happened in certain areas in Bangladesh that provided the opportunity for recruiters and for companies in Qatar to bring thousands and thousands of workers? Bangladesh, like
1: many other places around the world, is starting to see the structural changes uh, to its ecology and to its economy produced by climate change. The Kulna region in particular, which is kind of the southern part of Bangladesh, is facing the effects of sea level rise, combined with kind of endemic practices now, endemic over the last several decades of mangrove deforestation and some engineering interventions funded by the World Bank that turned out to be counterproductive. And what this has done is it's led to salination of agricultural fields and has produced kind of out and as they send family members to DACA or other places to supplement family incomes with cash because their fields are no longer as productive as it were. Some people are selling their and moving it to larger agriculture companies that are farming shrimp and other products. But what it has meant is that Qatari recruiters or Qatari companies have been able to draw on recruiters that have been able to plug into this existing migration stream out of Kulna. And instead of these potential workers migrating to Dhaka, Qatar has kind of redirected some portion of that stream to Qatar. But the story of the Kulna region of Bangladesh is repeated in many other areas of the world. The thing about this story is that it's emergent. And it's, Qatar is a small country. For all of its presence on the world stage, it's 3 million small. And so even if it's recruiting a million workers, a million workers contrasted to the global population is still tiny. But these trends are noticeable. And I think they are cautionary tale. They help us see the kinds of ways that climate change can be captured as a business asset. I think it's a complicated story also because on some level, if people are migrating, you want them to have the best opportunities to migrate. And many migrants' jobs in Qatar are good jobs, even though they pay kind of on a global scale pretty terribly. Climate damage is shaping everything that companies do from recruitment to the kinds of conditions that workers face on site. And we need to start mainstreaming it and thinking about it, not as an external pressure, but as something that shapes labor in a fundamental way in all of our economic spaces. The thing that's a little bit ironic or painful is a better way to put this is that you have companies producing buildings relying on you know hydrocarbon funds to do that they're using petrodollars basically and the product that they are using to fund their construction right petrodollars petroleum gas is damaging the places that they are then going to recruit workers from at lower wages than they might otherwise.
0: and also bringing in and importing all this cheap labor not only in um, qatar but in other parts of the world It's also a factor in how these companies or these countries think about controlling migration.
1: On some level, I was thinking about this as I was considering the recruitment practices um, and in particular costs associated with travel to Qatar for a job for migrants, right? So the recruitment fees that migrants pay are not insignificant, even though most of these are outlawed. And there is some enforcement, both the Qatari side and the country of origin side over these recruitment fees, but nevertheless, workers routinely pay between 500 to several thousand dollars for these jobs. But on some level, the migration process itself is safer than the migration process you might see, for example, at the southern border of the U.S. It's no less uh, dehumanizing, but it is safer. It's expensive, but it's in some ways increasingly maybe even less expensive.
0: Can you talk about who the recruiters are, where these agencies are registered in Qatar or in countries where the workers come from?
1: So the way it works is that a company in Qatar will decide, okay, we need 400 masons or we need 500 carpenters or we need 120 welders. And so they'll go to the Ministry of Labour and they'll file a petition for that number of workers, the wage levels on the country that they plan to source from. And that will be reviewed and a negotiation starts. Very frequently, companies are told to change the source country, change the wage level, change the occupational category. But that process goes on for a while and then the company have the approval for a set number of visas for a specific country at a specific wage level for a specific occupation. Then they will reach out to recruiters in that country. And most big companies in Qatar will reach out to more established recruiters in the origin. They will issue kind of these smaller recruitment companies or fly-by-night operations because they need companies, recruiters that can provide hundreds of workers at a time. So providing hundreds of workers at a time means that you have the capacity to process, you know, hundreds of visas within a short window, two, three weeks. So not only do you have to process the visas, but you have to find the workers. And often for particular skill categories, operational categories, this means that you as a company, would prefer to work with larger established firms that act as a recipient for many streams of sub-agents who are trying to send workers abroad. So in country, the way it works is that At the top of the chain, you have the agent that works with the foreign company. And below that, you have a chain of sub-agents who aggregate workers from the village level to the town level, all the way to the agent, which is usually located in the capital or some other big city. What this need of Qatari companies and many other companies too has done is it's nurtured the large recruitment agencies you start to see a bifurcation of the recruitment so that some of the smaller and in some ways more exploitative shops become less competitive. And these larger, more professionalized companies become more competitive. And these are companies that are not trying to earn profits off the backs of migrants. They are companies that are competing on volume they will charge Qatari companies for their service. So they are not charging. as one recruiter said, it would be like charging biscuits for the privilege of being on the grocery shelves. You know what I mean? It's a kind of a very disturbing turn of phrase, but it captures the meaning. They are selling workers. Why would they charge the workers for the privilege of selling them? They need access to volume. And has changed the recruitment industry to some effect. But it has also meant that these larger companies are much more able to use sophisticated analyses to identify which communities are likely to yield more workers. So they have moved from recruiting people to recruiting places, and they select the places based on socioeconomic trends and parameters, education levels, based on nutrition level, based on uh, human development investments, and on climate change altogether. So able to provide companies in Qatar with newly workers who can be upskilled very fast, but can be paid as if they were unskilled.
0: Why do workers pay recruitment fee?
1: They pay recruitment fees because the jobs are in high demand. These are fees that are, it's not one lump sum. It's like, you know, $100 here, $100 to get your passport expedited, $100 to make sure that somebody gets you into a a boarding house in Kathmandu or Dhaka. There are all these little fees along the way. And all of that adds up. It adds up to often several thousand dollars.
0: So the fee is not paid to the agency. It's just the cost of traveling to Doha.
1: It's not actually the cost of traveling to Doha. It's often the cost of traveling from the capital of the ascending country. The costs of traveling to Doha are covered by the recruitment company and or the company in Qatar. But what ends up happening is that you have a set of middlemen along the way that act as expeditors or even contacts to these larger recruitment firms.
0: So it's a pretty complicated and complex system. Yeah, it is. So let's talk about the living conditions of workers who end up in Qatar. Migrant workers live in Doha's industrial district. You write, this district laid out on a utilitarian grid, not much larger than Doha's international airport, was zoned for the garages, factories, and workshops that were excluded from the modern metropolis. With a squat Concrete structures, banks of identical warehouses and rows of parked, often damaged cement mixers and construction lorries. The district felt like a world apart. You visited the area a few times. What can you tell us about this place and life in this uh, segregated space?
1: It's really striking to go to the industrial area, particularly for the first time. Doha is a jewel box. It's always glimmering, always full of light, always full of luxury, always full of expressions of architectural ambition and luxury and commerce. And you go to the industrial area and you find a place that is absolutely desolate, absolutely gray, absolutely without light and without activity. There are no stores. There are no... I mean, now Qatar has built a mall in particular for workers. But when I went, there were no stores. There was no coffee shops, no social spaces. This is an area that is absolutely zoned for industrial use. And keeping with the idea that workers are industrial inputs, not people. It's an entirely male space. There are no women in the industrial area. The census notes that the population is 99.9 or 7% male. It's a remarkable uh, space and it is absolutely dead. There's no one there. The only people who are there are the workers who work, who are there sleeping and recovering before their next turn at the night shift. And the industrial area is marked with two moments of intense activity In the morning, when the buses leave and take workers to their construction sites, so this is often very early, in 5 or 6 a.m., and then in the evening when workers return from their shifts, 10 or 12 hours later at 6 p.m., and then there's a much to cook and bathe and do all of the kind of self-care that is required to just be alive before things go quiet again in anticipation of the next shift. I mean, the one thing that is I think important to note is that you know, workers work these intense shifts, really intensive physical labor with high cognitive demands and then have to come back and cook three meals, right? Their dinner and then lunch and breakfast for the next day and then have to bathe and then have to call their families and decompress and sleep. And with the hope that their air condition works and then get up and do it all over the next day.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the residential compounds? You write that at almost all the labor camps you visited, doors were labeled with nationality of the residents. Punjabi or Bengali or the more generic Indian were stenciled across the front.
1: So workers created their own systems of organization at different labor camps. The labor camps ranged from small, little rented rooms of, you know, a few dozen workers to compounds with several hundred workers. And they each had their own system of organization. Not a few of the labor that had had kind of like a camp boss to maintain discipline. Usually a worker who was deputized to kind of make sure that everyone stayed in line. So there was a A system of governance there that was not always very friendly and definitely intimidating to many, but that kind of governed life in the camps. Some camps divided themselves up by nationality. So, for example, one camp I went to had Ethiopian workers and Thai workers and there was a Thai wing and an Ethiopian wing and they didn't mix or uh, workers sorted themselves by nationality and by room so that you had, you know, Bengali workers, Nepali workers, et cetera. And there was a kind of uneasy peace in a lot of these labor, you know, they were crowded places where people were really stressed and the conditions were not easy. So maintaining a kind of peace was really important. From time to time, there were fights that carried over from the work site. But in general, workers tried hard to not escalate things. They were there to work, and they really tried very hard to have things explode. A lot of self-control and and restraint.
0: And these people work around 10 hours a day, and it takes a couple of hours to travel from yeah. And two, the work sites.
1: Without traffic to the work sites, it's between half an hour to 45 minutes, but with traffic and with the understanding these buses all leave and arrive at the same time, yeah. the trip lasts an hour, an hour and a half each way. And one of the fascinating, disturbing details that I learned during my field work was that most occupational injuries that happen on Katari work sites happen when people rush because they want to be on the first bus out from the work site and that there is pushing and shoving and tripping and that many of the injuries on site actually happen in that rush to get on the bus, which kind of speaks to how tired workers are, how much they want to get home, how little time they have to do all of the things they need to do. And the fact that even you know the difference between one bus and another bus 15 minutes at most and those 15 minutes are so precious that there's a mad rush to get on the bus, even if it means risking injury.
0: Natasha Iskandar is an associate professor at NYU Wagner Graduate School of Public Service and author of Does Skill Make Us Human? Migrant Workers in 21st Century Qatar and Beyond. We'll talk more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. For those of you joining us now, I am Malihera Zozan, and you are listening to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa on KPFA in Berkeley and online at kpfa.org. I'm speaking with Natasha Eskandar. She is an associate professor at NYU Wagner Graduate School of Public Service and author of Does Skill Make Us Human? Migrant Workers in 21st Century Qatar and Beyond. Around 90% of Qatar's population of 2.6 million is made up of foreigners, many of them laborers who often work in blistering heat to finish the mega-construction projects in time for the World Cup that starts on November 21st. You spoke with uh, workers, and they described the camps as, quote, jail or prison, but always as temporary spaces. As the country began the build-up to the Games, the international press and human rights organization turned the spotlight on the working conditions experienced by the migrant workers on construction sites in Qatar. The reports were damning, and they identified numerous standards of forced labor, low or will held um, pay, debt bondage, injury, and death. And of course, there is the guardian investigation that revealed that 6,500 workers, and this uh, was published last year, that revealed 6,500 workers died since 2010. So can you tell us a little bit about your conversations with workers, the conditions under which they worked? So
1: one of the things that really surprised me was that, you know, when I started to do these interviews, when I first would come on a site, or when workers would first interact with me, they often perceived me as a human rights investigator or as a journalist. And so they would talk to me about, you know, the basic parameters of their working conditions. Their is, their forced overtime, whether or not they had been paid, the conditions of their accommodations, et cetera. But these were kind of, it was like a list. It was, there was wrote about it, something kind of telling me what I wanted to hear in some ways or what they thought I wanted to hear. And these were kind of like the broad outlines of their working conditions. But then when I shifted to ask about skill, what they were proud of, what they had learned, what was difficult, their own subjective experience of work, the interviews came alive. And workers talked about a rich, lived experience of work in Qatar, not all positive by any stretch, but there was definitely noticeable pride in what they had managed to accomplish. They also referred to the solidarity amongst workers. And they talked about the fact that they were able to do what they were able to do, right? Build these remarkable structures in the face of significant obstacles, right? So very difficult working conditions, So fear and long hours and the tax on their bodies and the distance away from their families and the financial stress and, 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 that they were able to do this remarkable thing in the midst of this difficulty. And also just how remarkable, right? The the details of what they were able to accomplish, the fact that they built some of the largest most complex scaffolding structures in the world, the fact that they welded things in ways that were unimaginable until they were welded. I mean, just the difficulty of what they did, it, just to have them describe what they did, how they did it, what it took, was really moving me. The other thing was surprising to me was the consistency of the answer to the question. What is the most difficult part of your job? And I would say that almost without fail, workers describe the heat as the most difficult part of their jobs. They described the physical oppression of working in conditions of extreme heat and humidity, um, how it completely it was the most daunting, heavy part. Of Jobs. They described feeling like they were drowning in the air or they described the sky pressing down on them or they just universally talked about it as the most difficult thing they had ever encountered and that it was unimaginable to them until they had worked under the conditions of heat that they faced. In fact, I would say that for me, one of the most difficult things of the field work was the heat mm-hmm. and the danger that it represented all the time. I think it is really difficult to understand and imagine how much the heat takes on kind of the personality of a character because Mm -hmm. it is so powerful and so present that it shapes really your experience and a profound makes very routine things feel very challenging. So one of the things that you wouldn't think of necessarily as kind of life threatening is the line to use the bathroom. The line to use the bathroom on sites where there were never enough bathrooms for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of workers meant standing in the heat, standing in the heat for 15, 20 minutes. And that was so dangerous and so stressful because recovering from that, once you suffer a heat injury, it's very difficult to kind of regain your composure and recover from heat.
0: You have a a very telling passage in your book, which relates to heat. You spoke with a manager at this company, AEA. He told you many of the workers are very weak when they arrive. Look, frankly, they are malnourished. We spend the first weeks just feeding them. After two weeks, we have them start digging. Digging, I asked, unsure what task in the technical excavation process he was referring to. His answer surprised me. Yes, we give them a shovel and we have them dig for three or four weeks to see if they can manage the work and the heat. If they do not regain their strength, we will send them back. Only if we see that they are strong and that they will manage, do we invest in training.
1: One of the things about heat injury that is makes it very complicated to manage and prevent against is that anyone can be vulnerable to heat injury. There's nothing about a particular cup of a person that is protective against heat injury. The only thing that's protective against heat injury is fundamentally not working in the heat not being exposed to it, not working in the heat. And if you must work in the heat, working under very specific conditions of rest and hydration and so on. What is difficult about the heat to manage it as a worker. And I think something that is not so visible to managers is that heat is capricious. So one day you could be fine in very hot conditions. And the next day under conditions are less extreme you can suffer severe heat stress. And the science about why that is, is not clear. So what this means is that this manager's approach to thinking about, will these workers be robust enough to manage in the heat? It kind of makes a misunderstanding of the dangers that workers run and how unpredictable those dangers are. And it's the unpredictability in part that makes it so difficult. So that one day you feel like, okay, I can do X, Y, and Z tasks and only rest much and only drink this much water and I'm fine. And the next day, even if you are resting that much, mm-hmm. drinking more water, taking it a little bit easier and it's less hot, that is the day that you can get heat injury.
0: So you have these workers living in these segregated areas, which you describe as labor storage facilities, Then you have the work sites where they work. And then you have the spaces in between. Can they move around? You spoke with another worker who said, I migrated for a better salary than I got in Ghana. But when I came, I found that it was different than what the agent told me. I would try to manage here for some times. Our work is our life. We cannot move anywhere in this country. If you go anywhere, they stop you and ask you where you're going. The slave trade is over, but it feels like slavery is back. They forced us to do what we do not want to, but we do not have a choice. We're not treated like men. And if I am not treated like men, how can I smile? Outside of work and outside of the residential areas, where can they go? You have a fascinating chapter about how their movement is regulated and monitored and how there is a system of unofficial racial profiling that impedes their freedom of movement. Can you talk about that, how city is organized along racial ethnic lines?
1: There are areas of the city that are no-go for unskilled workers. These are for unskilled workers to live in and de facto to move around in. These are areas called family areas. Who lives in the family includes bachelors, unmarried people and families, but by family, what is meant it's kind of a code term for professional elite workers. Workers were initially termed bachelors because they were on visa categories that didn't allow them to bring their families. But in fact, most of them are not bachelors. They are parts of families. They're either married or parts of families. And but this f- distinction of family areas is used to ban workers, unskilled workers, omed workers from large of Doha. Most of Doha, most of you of pretty much all of Qatar. And the term family areas indicates kind of moral threat that the workers supposedly represent with all of the kind of intimations of sexual violence and sexual threat that might represent. And this is used as a way to control their movements. So not only are workers forbidden from living in family areas, but if they do circulate, if they do move through the parks or any of the public spaces they help build, they're just routinely picked up by the police and detained, deported, disciplined in other ways. There's a really strong policy enacted prohibition against the circulation of workers in, in most of Doha. And in 2020, when the COVID pandemic first emerged, one of the really striking about Qatar's response is that it used kind of an older, almost discredited form of public health intervention, which was to draw a cordon sanitaire around the industrial area and prohibit workers from leaving entirely and prohibit basic services, including grocery deliveries and health care from entering, so that in the industrial, surrounded by the cordon sanitaire, workers were literally going hungry. They were allowed to move out only to work. So this segregation was kind of hardened by this health imperative.
0: You write about how they kept refining the system. They even created a color-coded map to designate where the so-called families and bachelors can live. They just kept refining and revising the zoning laws because, again, these are very, very difficult to monitor and regulate and control. People move around. They had to just keep changing the laws in order to make it more precise for them to be able to control their, their movement. To,
1: in a way to make the employers accountable for the movements of their workers.
0: What has been getting a lot of attention in the international media by the human rights organization has been the kafala system. And we spoke about it at length last time. Just remind of what it is. And then I would like you to tell us exactly how that has changed over time. In 2020, the media celebrated Qatar uh, demolishing and getting rid of the quote-unquote exploitative Kafala system. The Guardian reported that the reforms largely brought an end to the kafala system or the uh, sponsorship system, as I said, under which workers were unable to change jobs without their employer's permission, a practice that leaves many vulnerable to exploitation, and in some cases forced labor. So tell us what changed.
1: So the kafala system in 2010 had a series of important restrictions. Workers were formally bound to their employers. Their employer was their sponsor. Their employer determined whether they were allowed to leave the country. They needed an exit visa. They could not change sponsors or employers except under the most extreme circumstances and with government approval, which was basically impossible to get. And workers had no right to withhold for any reason from their sponsors. So they couldn't quit. And they were compelled to continue working even if they were not paid for months at a time or uh, suffered conditions that were unsafe or extreme, or were subjected to things like forced labor. Under the Kefela system, their employers could deport them for any reason, any infraction, or just at will. And uh, workers were also living in accommodations provided by their employers, which just underscored the dependency. And employers were, according to the terms of the Kefela system required, in many cases to provide that housing. An additional wrinkle here is that when employers returned workers to their country of origin, those workers could not come back to Qatar for two years without the permission of their prior employer. So if they were returned to Nepal, say, and they wanted to come back to Qatar to take another job, they had to wait at the permission of their prior employer to do that this sponsorship system had really devastating effects on workers. And as a result of the international pressure around it, Qatar made a series of changes. And what those changes are today, the reason the sponsorship system is said to be undone is that workers are no longer tied by law to an employer. They can change jobs under restrictive conditions with a set of a lead time in other words the reforms look better on paper than they do in practice but on paper workers are able to change jobs they are protected by a minimum wage which is low but it's there how in low addition, so it's about 275 dollars a month and workers don't really get paid more than the minimum wage in general And then the Qatari government put in an electronic payment system as a means to try and prevent kind of the endemic wage theft that was prevalent in the industry. That system has not been very effective in preventing wage theft. But nevertheless, the regulatory structure today affords workers more rights than the temporary labor visas that we have in the US, including the H-2A, H-2B, and H-1B. Under those H-3 visas, you cannot change jobs at will. The minute you leave your job, your right to residence is abrogated, you have like a couple of weeks to change jobs if possible. So in some ways, the Qatari system offers protections that are equivalent or surpasses some of the protections in the US. The distinction is that there are derivative rights in the U.S. By that, I mean immigrant workers in the U.S. are protected by rights that citizen workers and long-term immigrant workers, immigrants whose right to residence is not tied to their work, have secured health and safety, wage protections, and other protections. And those protections apply to, in general, regardless of their immigrant status, so there are derivative rights in the U.S. that are important. And a really important distinction that remains is that in Qatar workers do not have the right to organize or protest.
0: And I think that's a very, very important issue. Something that ILO, the International Labor Organization, has not talked about much. They have talked about these regulatory processes. But you say even though these workers cannot protest, cannot create their own independent organizations, labor organization and syndicates. In Qatar, strikes and other forms of collective action by foreign workers is illegal, but wildcat strikes like the one you observed were common. So what happens when workers protest or go on strike?
1: There are lots of different kinds of strikes. In Qatar, it was very common to have wildcat strikes on sites. And by wildcat, I mean spontaneous strikes. The technical definition of wildcat is a strike that is not sanctioned by a union. And so the absence of unions means that all strikes are about wildcat strikes in Qatar. And these were, for the most part, tolerated as long as they kind of hewed to a certain script. They had to be short, a couple of days at most the workers had to stay behind at the labor camp. They couldn't have any kind of resistance on the work site. That was just completely prohibited and would result in immediate deportation. And in general, these strikes were tolerated when they were confined to a single nationality, when the Nepali workers striked or the Thai workers strike, the Indian workers strike. But the minute you got cross-national organizing as workers as opposed to representatives of a specific nationality, then those strikes would be shut down very, very quickly and would result in pretty immediate deportation. So you really saw the minute of these strikes a uh, way for workers to blow off steam, but the minute they actually s- started to threaten the power structure on site, they were cut off and deported.
0: Because one of the reasons they went on a strike or protesters was the fact that their pay was withheld, sometimes for several months. Did these protests, however small and away from the construction size, ever result in these workers getting some of their money back? The short answer is no. So we're coming to the end of our conversation, and I wanted to ask about your own experiences and the challenges you faced in doing your field research, going to Qatar, because it was quite an ordeal for you. You write about intimidation, you write about being surveilled and also about having minders. Even the first time you went to the industrial zone and at some point they really didn't want you to speak with workers anymore and then you had to go back again on your own to be able to speak freely with some of these workers. Tell me about how you were able to do all this? Because you say by some measures, it was surprising and unprecedented, even to the Qatari authorities themselves.
1: The first thing I wanna say is that there is much to love about Qatar. It's this riotously cosmopolitan place. It's a place with incredible aspirations. It was remarkable for me to see the kind of rapid development of capacity in government and the thoughtfulness of many in government, Qatari and non-Qatari, about the future of Qatar, but also about the welfare of workers and the well-being of workers. Still, this topic—it's a topic that has attracted a lot of international press attention, and it has not always shown Qatar and the companies that operate including international companies, in the best light. I think as part of the aspirational kind of elan of this push toward the World Cup, the Qatari government welcomed me in to do this project initially. And I think a project like this takes several years, and I think over the span of the project, the activities shifted. And that meant that the perception of the project also shifted. Like many researchers, uh, many contexts around the world, as a researcher who studies migrant worker rights, it can sometimes put you in the crosshairs of government surveillance. And that was certainly my experience in Qatar. It's also the experience of researchers who look at migrant rights on the US-Mexico border I think there's a larger discussion here to be had about what does it mean that research on these topics has become globally sensitive?
0: And securitized.
1: And securitized, right? You could say the same of researchers who are looking at the Mediterranean. So in the end, it became impossible for me to continue in a way that would allow me to protect the confidentiality of the people I spoke with workers, managers, even government officials. And in a way that, that I felt comfortable saying that I could protect the safety of my research team and my own safety. In the midst of all of this kind of research process, there were several instances of researchers who had much less access than I did and journalists with much less access being detained until they released their raw data. And this was something that I didn't want to risk And so when I felt I could no longer say that I was comfortable with the guarantees I could provide around confidentiality, I left. And the questions about access to raw data continued. But thankfully, my institution, NYU New York University, really backed me up and helped me protect the confidentiality of my research, which I am pledged as a researcher to protect, by an ethical and legal agreement with NYU and actually also with my Qatari funders. When the project became untenable, the contract was canceled and some portions of the research didn't happen. But nevertheless, I was able to pull together the data that I was able to collect and produce this book.
0: Natasha Skander is an associate professor at NYU Wagner Graduate School of Public Service whose research investigates the ways in which migrants shape the political and cultural landscapes of the spaces they occupy. She is the author of Does Skill Make Us Human? Migrant Workers in 21st Century Qatar and Beyond. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at vomina_radio, underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com.